0: You know, listen, no offense to the folks who been took yoga to vinyasa, hotter, hotter, still hotter yoga, nude hot yoga, nude hotter, more nude yoga, with coffee and with wine and with weed. You know, no offense. I hear you, man. Go, man, go. But do we all understand that that is perpetuating our current level of understanding? There has to be a change of momentum for us to enter the sacred there has to be a shift out of the normative mindset. And I think too often what we look for in complacency is to perpetuate our current level of understanding. Human beings bring two things to every environment. We bring content and we bring momentum. I mean, the great gift of yoga is its capacity to change our momentum.
1: Welcome to Voices of Esalen, I'm Sam Stern. Today my guest is one of the world's leading yoga and meditation teachers Rod Stryker. Rod is the founder of Para Yoga and the author of The Four Desires, Creating a Life of Purpose, Happiness, Prosperity, and Freedom. Rod is renowned for making ancient wisdom and practices accessible to modern audiences. Raised in Los Angeles, Rod was just 19 years old when he began his study of yoga. He taught his first class in 1980 and he went on to teach here at Esalen In addition to mentoring thousands of students worldwide, Rod also serves on the board of Give Back Yoga Foundation and is a featured faculty member of Yoga International. He is a father to four amazing souls and currently lives in Boise, Idaho. I'm also joined by my Esalen colleague and co-host today, Sadia Bruce. Sadia serves as head of experiential programming at Esalen, where she also teaches yoga in the tradition of Krishnamacharya. Sadiya endeavors to create energized, radically inclusive learning environments that are guided by breath and driven by inquiry. She hopes to share an understanding of yoga that is integrative, sensorial, and enlivening. Sadiya is also committed to bringing yoga and yoga-based practices to non-traditional environments and underserved populations, and to mentoring new teachers in relational dynamics, development of teaching voice, and teaching to economically, ethnically, and culturally diverse populations. So with no further ado, let's go to this conversation with myself, Rod Stryker, and Sadia Bruce.
0: I can think of something that was really defining in my life, which was really quite profound, which was just these two different streams of yogic teachings. So when I discovered Krishmacharya's teachings, all along, Krishmacharya, I would, you know, for those who are not familiar with him, he was probably the most influential of all yoga teachers of the previous century. If you look at his lineage, it it just maps out into these rivers of knowledge-based. Iyengar, he touched Iyengar, he touched Patavi Joyce, he touched Indra Devi, he touched his son, Deskachar, Vini Yoga, and really just amazing in sense. But I was so drawn to his science of sequencing. I would offer that, yes, he was a master in so many ways, but his understanding of how we elegantly put together a practice is so meaningful but meanwhile it, he didn't really shed a lot of light on tantra which was really where i stepped into yoga and where it became so significant and the tantrics it, in essence hatha yoga has been sustained by the natha it was the natha cult that really developed all of these all of these methodologies that come under the heading of yoga but very often they're not always taught together or seamlessly or even in a way where they're integrated in the West, You know whether it's asana and then pranayama and chakras and mudras and mantras. And we have knowledge of all of these methodologies and Kriya and all sorts of even intentional techniques and bhav and all of these things. Well, tantra is where they're all, that's the cauldron and where they're all brought together. The spirit of what I was teaching was Tantric because of my early influence, you know, the teachers I had early on. But I was so compelled by Krishnamacharya's sequencing knowledge. And it was only uh, after starting to blend them on my own that I found out that Krishmacharya's guru had the same guru as my Tantric teacher. And it's this idea that they... There was. There's nothing in the books. There's nothing historically that says they were brought. To, they were the same. Krishnamacharya's teacher, teacher, and my tantric grandteacher were the same human being, and yet completely different transmissions, if you will. When you feel that calling, we have to. We have to follow it.
2: It's also the, this line came to me in a meditation once. It was the future is ancestral. And so this thing that you've described, this accidental discovery of, you know, the one root teacher is like, I think that's the, that's what's next for everyone. We keep doing all this syncretic stuff. I had a conversation with Michael Murphy the other day and this phrase came to me. that was like, every, what, what everyone is doing is like fractal syncretism. And it's just, we just compiling and compiling reinterpretations and reinterpretations. But eventually I think what, we will arrive at, and I don't know when this is, this might be a thing that's not attached to time, but we'll arrive at, uh, what does J. Krishnamurti say, you know, truth is a pathless land.
0: Another point around that, because I was so curious that how could these two paths of knowledge, Krishnamurti is sequencing, for example, and Tantra, and he never spoke about Tantra, my teachers never spoke about sequencing and you just did the sequences but i never gained any actual knowledge about it i had to interpret it uh how could a single teacher provide the, the path of understanding of these two such distinct uh, such um distinct paths how could a single teacher kind of like be a just so such separate appearing uh i would say what appeared to be separate paths and I was told my teacher who was a student, a grand student of this teacher said, you know, he was such a master that he provided a completely different transmission for different students. So he saw what Krishnamacharya was meant to carry. He saw what Swami Rama was meant to carry. And that's the kind of, you know, wisdom. And it also speaks to how each of us in a way is a unique vessel meant to carry on, uh, meant to carry on a unique transmission that in a way is a sharing and a, 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 if you will, a beacon to guide people to their to their understanding. And And, you know, there's clearly people who I can speak to that will hear you better than will hear me. You know, that's part of the beauty of it.
2: Everyone does have their own kind of their own approach. And for me, I'm interested in scripture and I'm interested in these things, but my what I've discovered and what I have learned to become okay with is that that is not my lane necessarily. My lane is, it's something about the energy of the transmission, what it is to cultivate presence so that someone who is good at you know, absorbing knowledge and information, they can alchemize it so that it is presented to folks in a way that they can digest it and enjoy it, be with it, and then go interpret it for themselves.
0: In the West, the idea of innovation is super attractive. You know, if it's new, it's actually great, and it's interesting, and it's compelling, and it's sexy, for lack of a better word. In the East, it's the opposite. What innovation is actually suspect, It's called Shruti for a reason. And what distinguishes all paths in the East, in essence, especially within Tantra and Hinduism and Veda, is whether or not you accept the ancient teachings as Shruti, which means heard. They weren't written. They were heard. And what distinguishes those paths is to say, oh, these were heard, and they're absolutely the foundation upon which all teachings must be built. Because they were not written, they were not crafted. And so you know ahead of time whether something is actually holds to this idea of shruti or not. You you know that. And that's why and, and, and in a sense that that speaks to this idea of how vibrant and how vital and how irrefutable in a way those her teachings are. And if you're gonna veer away from them, then just let's. Acknowledge that, that we're not accepting them as Shruti, as, as having been heard.
2: It reminds me um, of uh, jazz and, and Coltrane and any other jazz musician. Actually, you must learn your scales first before you can do the thing that's so exciting. Coltrane loves Stravinsky. And I tell this to teacher training students a lot who are excited to like be creative as a teacher. <laughs> Creativity, good. But scales even better. Yeah. <laughs> scales even better. I also do this, uh, mm-hmm. this little mm-hmm. party trick while I'll show them two portraits. You know, one is kind of a classically rendered portrait. The other one is like this cubist, like exciting. Oh my gosh, like what is that? And I ask them which one is more interesting to you? Which one has a little more juice? And invariably they choose the second cubist abstract thing. And I reveal to them that they're both Picasso and that the original one is a portrait that Picasso painted of his mother early on in his art studies, and that the second one is the one that he arrived at through, you know, deep study of reality, of truth, of what is.
1: Preparing for this interview, I listened to several interviews that you did. And one thing that impressed me about you was that you are a kind of person who's willing to interrogate his own beliefs. So, and I want to kind of like get into the idea of teacher as fallible, acknowledging the dynamic between teacher and student, acknowledging the power dynamic there too, and how that can inform us, those of us who are interested in being teachers, how that can inform our practices we're probably more challenged by
0: this idea than ever. Part of the reason is that there's been a shift in ethos that's cultural and social, some of which is really important and helpful. And that is a kind of leveling the playing field. Now we have this dynamic, as I started to say, the moment someone is in the front of the room and giving direction, there's already a power differential. So how do we navigate that? Do we reject it just on the basis of the idea that the moment there's power differential, it needs to be annihilated. Well, then how do you teach? That's impossible to teach unless you're teaching in a circle, which is a viable way to teach, but it's a very different way to teach and receive teachings. I think sooner or later, if we are to learn, there has to be a dynamic. There has to be this element of walking into the dynamic of teacher and student, but to do it as mindfully as possible. We all know that in psychology and psychotherapy, it is assumed that sooner or later there'll be projection and there'll be transference. That's assumed. And it's almost declared sooner or later. When you start getting pissed off at your therapist or you start feeling attracted to your therapist or you start feeling overattached to things that they say, it's a it's a rife opportunity for projection. So we know the moment there's power differential, there will be distorted perception. And by the way, on both On behalf of both individuals, the teacher is idealized perhaps, or it's opposite version, whatever the antithesis of of being idolized is, or seen as on a pedestal. The challenge we face, because I do think having a relational, and I'm using that word, I want to use that word carefully, but there being a relational context to our learning is vital because to be purely transactional which is I'm getting information from this person. I'm not going to see them as other than equal my equal. And I just want to get the information and be able to teach it on Monday after I received it on Saturday. I would say that a formative part of my development actually occurred because I did walk through projection and other elements in my relationship to my teacher. I had to consistently be disappointed in not getting what I wanted from my teacher. But I brought a kind of willingness as a student in those days to say, your disappointment is more about you than it is about them. What I say is that, you know, look, we all want to learn, but we don't all have the same relationship to being taught. You know, we all want to know. Listen, my first teacher was very clear with me. He said, Rod, a student should be as careful who they select as a teacher as the teacher should be selective about their students. And in this day and age... We're now teaching and lots of teaching, the majority of teaching, I would say, is happening remotely. There's no selectivity about who's studying with you. I would say, in my own life experience as a teacher, having done it for over 40 years, is to be extremely, like everything else, really clear about what it means to you, you know, and really to simply be of service to students with no personal validation and. I mean, it almost goes without saying, in a way, that's really the critical piece.
2: I'm just, what's coming up for me is just how different my experience of this, you know, the all-powerful, the the power differential that everyone speaks of. And so, a- as we know, you know, how we're received by people is very much colored by our social location. I'm in a very unique position because I often teach where folks are white, they're older than I am. And so my way of maneuvering the space as a, as a teacher or a leader of any kind, it's, it's very fascinating. I've conducted all kinds of experiments as I learn and I grow through this process. At Kripalu, I used to lead this conscious communication workshop and I'd have folks file in and they wouldn't know who was teaching. So they'd, you know, maybe a name would be there but no photo or anything. So, and folks were just passing through. So they would file into the room for whatever reason, maybe it was the description, but this workshop really magnetized people. So folks would file into the room and I'd just be off to the side. This is part of the experiment to not be sitting in the front of the room as they filed in, just let them file in. <laughs> so they could file in, file in. And then, you know, I would walk to the front of the room. This is maybe a handful of years ago, and I would just have to contend with feeling the energy of confusion of shock, positive emotion as well, but it was just such a, you could feel it. And so I'd have to navigate that, wait for it to peter out a little bit, center the room, and then start speaking. And after I would speak for a little while, you would watch the energy in the room start to shift. And so little things like this, they're, they're happening all the time.
0: So you said you could feel it. And that is, is the it that you sensed in the group, was that, oh... I am going to be led by a young woman of color.
2: Yeah, yeah. I thought I was i was alluding to it clearly enough, but that's exactly it. I'm going to be led by, <laughs> for sure, for sure. Yeah, that's exactly it.
0: And they were having to, you could feel them kind of trying to reorient them. It wasn't going to be a white middle-aged man.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And thanks for asking for the clarification because this is such a part of my it's just the way that I have to move in the world that I, I don't even realize that folks don't quite understand what I'm talking about if I'm not explicit. So it's helpful that you keep teasing it out. <laughs> and then the other flip side of it is that as a student, you know, I, I went to school in a suburb, pre- relatively mixed suburb, but still pretty pronounced racial dynamics. And so I had some negative experiences with teachers from the time I was a small child. And so for me to begin to study yoga and embodiment mm-hmm. practices, I've never pedestalized the teacher ever. And it's because I was primed to not, to not trust them, to be skeptical. And so when I hear folks, you know, in the yoga world talk about the power differential, it doesn't quite land for me. It's not relatable for me. I get it, I see it, but my own personal experience is, is quite the opposite, where there is a heightened skepticism. And I won't even go study with a person if I have even a little inkling that, oh, we, we won't resonate or they, they won't offer what I need or perhaps they won't be able to receive me as a student or whatever it is. There's a heightened skepticism.
0: The wholesale dismissal of learning in an environment where there is built-in power differential, I think people will really be missing something as a result of that. The fact that you don't, you don't burden the opportunity of learning with this elevating to this pedestal piece is a gift. I don't, I I don't, I don't suggest that getting to the place where you were, you could do that was easy. I'm not suggesting that at all. It sounds like it was, you know, you had to develop, you develop scar tissue and there were events that led you to that place, but it's a gift to actually enter into that space open to learn, and yet not idealizing. Listen, in the end, we're all human beings. I mean, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, you know, I'm not that familiar with him, but, you know, there was an event many decades ago, early on in my teaching, probably more than 30 years ago. And he was asked a question, and he began to weep. You know, he began to cry. He was asked a simple question. The question was, how long will it take for me to master meditation? just bowed his head and started to cry and he lifted his head and he said a long time a long time the idea that there's a stage where we become unhuman and I would I would tell you from my own experience that one there's very few teachers in this world who have escaped the transactionalism of having to deal with fundamentally addressing their fears of survival their fears of having an identity their fears of place in the world there's almost No one. And uh, now I'm talking about some of the individuals who walked the halls of Esalen as well, you know, for sure. And some of those stories are well publicized about their humanity. I would also offer that there are degrees to which teachers will go to places where they're not, where they step out of being conscious. There's degrees. It's not one large pool. Everyone is created equal in terms of their humanity and their frailty, if you will. I think some of those nuances have been lost, unfortunately. But listen, man, there is nothing more profound as a teacher than relationship. This is corroborated. If you look at the neurological science, it actually tells us the most complicated operation for the brain, the human brain, is relationships. The reason human beings dream more than any other primate is because We spend a lot of time trying to figure out, our brain is processing the burden of the complexity of our social engagement. And so, yes, all of these methods present and offer powerful tools for self-reflection, but lo and behold, it's relationship where we, as much as anything else, learn about ourselves.
2: In kind of modern Western culture, hierarchy has been misused in a lot of traditional cultures, including the ones that I I claim as, as my own, that are my own hierarchy, especially in familial structure, is very present all the time. And so you kind of grow up with this understanding that you're being guided by someone. It's part of just your everyday life. And I think in kind of modern Western culture, that kind of hierarchy, it, it has been broken down for a long time. For example, I remember growing up as a kid, and this is maybe, you know, like the early 90s, and I had a couple of friends who would call their parents by their first names. <laughs> and that's something that a lot of people of different cultures, African-American culture, certainly various African cultures in Asia, you would never do that ever and so I think in our culture you know folks are starting to adopt these practices they're trying to I suppose they're trying to overlay this Western cultural understanding of hierarchy onto this system that was born of a completely different worldview. It's
0: I would just say it's a time of delicacy around navigating this idea are we still teachable and if we are, can we bring discernment to those environments where we can be taught? both on the part of the person teaching and on the person receiving those teachings. So let's put it in absolute terms, absolute dismantling of hierarchy in a learning environment doesn't actually lead to necessarily evolutionary shifts.
2: Yeah. And I'll go so far as to say that it's actually dangerous to for a student to enter a room with no container that is intentionally held by someone who has power. Yeah. And it's funny to watch, you know, just the glamorization of teaching of, of especially yoga teaching as as a profession it's it's wild. and so
0: what does that look like to you from from where you are?
2: For sure. It's something, you know, I, I think I was mentioning in our last conversation that I started teaching at around like the tail end of like the heyday of the New York yoga scene where all teachers were passing through. You were passing through a whole bunch, so many folks. And I would try to study with as many people as possible. There was qual- quality yoga to be found almost everywhere. And as I started to teach, I, I really resisted. This is around the time that Instagram became was was in use it was just on the scene in 2013 and you would watch as you know folks would post themselves doing asana and this and that and for some reason something in me it just didn't didn't land well for me it didn't seem appropriate to me i used to joke with people that seeing someone do asana on instagram was like watching them like use the bathroom or something like why 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 are we why are we broadcasting <laughs> why are we broadcasting this intensely intimate personal moment you know and I, I I don't know what in me was the driving force that you know had me resisting and resisting and resisting because I think it would have been quite easy just to I'd, sometimes I think about doing it today like just put a bunch of photos on the internet and call call it a life get some people to sponsor you be this commercial figure and do all this weird meaningless stuff and life will be much easier much easier <laughs> yeah yeah but something in me just i i don't know and i don't know if it's related to what we were addressing in our original conversation about some of us you know we were we have this dharmic call and we have to answer it and so maybe substance is mine maybe integrity
0: it's fair to acknowledge that just because we're moving forward doesn't mean we're evolving. It's quite possible to devolve, you know? Forward movement isn't necessarily evolutionary. And that piece you mentioned about IG is not insignificant. I mean, yoga's already peaked. You know, yoga has peaked. Just in terms of the sheer number of people doing it, it's it's peaked by a lot. Um, And that's the first time it's declined in that, you know, that 30-year climb out of the obscurity of, you know, the early, late 70s, It's the first time the numbers seriously are are in decline at all. I would offer that part of it is what happened there. Glamorization, but what the way you're describing, it's really like putting at the forefront of those teachings, the most superficial stuff. You know, I too was struck by it. I was watching it happen. I too, you know, I too was not my sensibility and yours are in a lot of alignment. So I didn't dive into that thing at all. And then I began to see, you know, there was a, one or two and actually two influencers in the yoga world who did an Oprah, who got, you know, even a feature on Oprah, and they were at around 2 million followers. And one of them had the, uh, well, I'll say audacity, if you will, had the audacity to say, no, I don't study anymore. My, my people need me just to be present. You know, this kind of thing that's happened in a way, again, it's a super level playing field. In a sense now, acknowledging that you didn't invent these teachings, where they came from, that there are people with knowledge that's more senior to you, that doesn't really exist anymore. Part of it is this teaching has become non-localized. It's literally a quant in a, we're teaching in a quantum field, which is remotely. And you aren't competing for the students when you're at Eslin just at Esalen, or if you were based in New York, New Jersey, those are your peeps. You were very comfortable. What I observe is people were very comfortable saying, yeah, my teacher is in Colorado. And if you ever get to Colorado, you should study with him. Or if he ever comes to New York, you should stay with him. But now, because it's non-local, people don't say, hey, my teacher is there because those classes now, because of post-Zoom era, we're teaching to everyone in the world. And so it's like just holding on to those bodies of students that they don't have to be in our location. So all of these various things, including the big piece you talked about, uh, touched on, which is the glamorization of uh, yoga teacher have led to kind of this moment in time where it's a. T- I think it's a reassessment of the whole field.
2: I took a, this class called Sociology of the Body at Columbia and I, I wrote this paper proposal. I was gonna write about sort of the commercialization of yoga But also just the um, teaching for a little while now it's shifted because we're becoming more inclusive and this and that. But, you know, yoga, I think as a as as a hobby was something that was done by women, white women of a certain class for a little while in a little block of time. And so I think it coincided with this rise of I.G., and so you would see these women who were practicing or teaching had become teachers very quickly. And they would be depicting these lifestyles that people would say, oh, wow, then I, I have to become a yoga teacher so I can live like that. Not realizing, you know, all of the kind of social underpinnings, you know, that make that delusion or that that illusion possible. And so that that is also super interesting to me. It's shifted now, but that was a thing for a while. And so people would go to yoga teacher trainings, not to deepen their practice, but to become a yoga teacher. And in fact, that's still happening a lot where people are, they are privileging teaching and forgetting about studentship. And I think I shared with you, Rod, at some point, this quote from Ronnie Coleman, eight time Mr. Olympiad, (laughs) he said, you know, everybody wants to be a bodybuilder, but nobody wants to lift any heavy ass weights. And that's what's happening. Everybody wants to be a bodybuilder. No one wants to lift weights. (laughs) Everyone wants to teach. No one wants to practice. (laughs) I think it's
0: Thoreau. He writes, uh, he wrote that the path of least resistance leads to crooked rivers and crooked men.
2: In certain circles, people, you know, they're doing the yoga of complacency. They're doing a yoga that does not rupture their worldview or their orientation. It keeps them in this very easy, everything's beautiful kind of groove. And so that reminds me of this river with no currents or this, you know, river with no resistance. Certain folks who are not interested in friction or effort or rupture, disruption, fire.
1: Within a the context of a class, what does the opposite of the yoga of complacency look like or entail?
2: It looks like what Rod teaches. Yeah, it looks like tending to the inner fire.
0: there can't be complacency in true learning. Learning is very much the way Satya is describing it. Sooner or later, I'm gonna come up against my boundaries, my limits, you know, it's my understanding that discomfort is essential to create new neural pathways. Our brain will not actually develop a new neural pathway unless we get uncomfortable. Now, I I, and I'm I'm not of the mind that a teacher should deliberately make what they do uncomfortable, but I think for this, for our conversation to have some, some, provide some answers and sense of guidance for students, I mean, if you're not prepared to be made uncomfortable at some point, you're really not prepared to study very much, or perhaps even have a teacher. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I, maybe because of my background in psychology, I just knew I could almost, it wasn't my first response in all honesty. But eventually, I would always know that my discomfort with my teacher, or my or the teachings, had everything to do with me and relatively little to do with them. And that I think is something again that we have we have discomfort about. So let's go back to Sam's question because I'd love to hear the answer. What is what does that look like, uh, Sadia? This opposite of complacency.
2: Yeah. Well, I'll just share something that I often offer students. And in these days, I'm not really teaching asana. I'm teaching this kind of interesting, syncretic, playful practice that is very just alive and gets folks to be in their bodies. But I'm often sharing with them that, you know, um, to be very watchful of, of the workings of the mind as they're doing practice. Sometimes we'll come up against movements or patterns of movement that do create a little bit of friction. And so I invite them in those moments to just watch their patterning around meeting this manufactured challenge. And, you know, if you notice that your patterning feels generative or you're curious, you're just applying right effort. You can keep going. You can keep breathing. Wonderful. If you're noticing something else, what can you do to calibrate your experience? So you're still inside of the challenge without falling away or without hurting yourself. And so it's about finding, balance.
0: You know, I would add to that because I think we're, you're on to something really strong and that is fundamentally there has to be a change of momentum. And the idea of what you spoke to earlier about Instagram, it kind of was meeting a lot of people where they were or really where they wanted to be, which was just an extension of where they already were. Most of those, uh I'm thinking about these two influencers who crossed the million mark on yoga, you know, yoga follows. They were bikinis on the beach. No offense, but that's, that was the allure. Every, you know, one, one person in particular, just every day was a, a beach and a different bikini and a shot. And I would offer that's meeting people where either they are or where they want to be. It's kind of this aspirational privilege, if you will. What I teach Sam and, and maybe, maybe this is, what i think sadia may have i don't know i'll i'll read into it this is maybe what you were alluding to there has to be a change of momentum for thus to enter the sacred there has to be a shift out of the normative mindset and i think too often what we look for in complacency is to perpetuate our current level of understanding human beings bring two things to every environment we bring content my past experiences, my learning, my rational mind, what I've been taught, my beliefs, and we bring momentum. I mean, the great gift of yoga is its capacity to change our momentum. You know, you could say that by slowing things down, the parts of you that are not working get even more acute. And the parts of you that are working, you will call into question when we slow down. There's this objectification of ourselves, our minds, all the stuff we bring to the table. That to me is the opposite of complacency. That's the antidote to the complacency, is we change momentum. There is great discoveries and, and extraordinary things to know about what we are, but our current event horizon, our current level of perspective doesn't allow us to see it. And in that furthering of our perspective, naturally what we'll begin to do is run up against the limits of our perspective. The moment we are more aware, we recognize how unaware we were previously and that's discomfort you that is discomfort there's a there's even a grief about oh hell i was walking through life with all this misunderstanding damn hold on and that's when that's when learning becomes uh for lack of a better word real that's when learning really starts to happen and then finally, you know, that other piece is when we change our momentum, we get a little bit more still. We don't, it's not about a perpetuating, you know, listen, no offense to the folks who've been, you know, took yoga to vinyasa, hotter, hotter, still hotter yoga, nude, hot yoga, nude, hotter, more nude yoga with coffee and with wine and with weed, you know, no offense. I hear you, man. Go, man, go. But do we all understand that that is perpetuating our current level of understanding? It's this word that's used about in yoga from the beginning. It's all about tapas. We need a certain amount of heat, a certain amount of friction to light the match of knowledge. There are four different shadows that lay over the mind and the mind informed by these four veils or shadows is unable to grasp the totality of who we are. Now, those four things are animus, so anger, a lack of compassion, judgment for those who, be- who we believe are less uh, virtuous than we are, and envy of those who are perhaps more, uh, advan- in our eyes, more advanced spiritually. I mean, I'll go through them again real quick. So it's anger, withholding compassion, judgment, and envy. I'm not going to talk about the rest of the world. I'm going to talk about the yoga world. In essence, those four things have become normalized. Normalized. We feel entitled to our anger. We definitely feel entitled to who we judge as being inferior to us. We withhold compassion consistently, both to ourselves and to others, by the way. And so if, we, if you go through them, what I would offer is that that kind of, what's so intriguing is when I, you introduce these concepts and there's actually contemplations to resolve each one of those four things, people are like making these discoveries about themselves and the weight of their judgment or their withholding of love, which texts are describing as cruelty. When you withhold compassion, that's cruelty. I would offer in the yoga world Not only has this, has the river gotten crooked based on that earlier quote, right? That the path of least resistance, but it's almost like we've, we've lost the objective awareness that tells us like, Hey man, I can't get, I can't embody the Dharma, the Tao, the way these, these key principles, if I hold these four stains of the mind as normal and acceptable. And I'm not saying they don't have a place in life, but they don't actually allow you to progress spiritually. It's one more piece that says, you know, we need to dig deeper into our own self-understanding and self-inquiry to embody more of this thing called yoga and to ultimately be set free, which is the ultimate promise of what these teachings are all about.
1: Rod Stryker, it's been such a an honor and a privilege to speak with you today. And Sadia Bruce, thank you so much for for co-hosting with me and co-interviewing. Uh, for folks who want to check out more of Rod Stryker's offering, you need only visit his website, RodStriker.com. That's R-O-D-S-T-R-Y-K-E-R.com. Yeah, you can you can reach him and and uh, experience more of his teachings there. Pleasure, Sam and
0: Sadia
2: yes thank you
0: joy to be with you see you you're an
1: inspiration
2: uh, thank you thank you both thank you thank you this is beautiful
1: thanks so much for listening to voices of esalen today's show was produced in conjunction with shira levine our theme music is by nico Holloman. esalen institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing human potential and promoting positive social change Your support helps us to continue to offer transformative programs and retreats that promote personal growth and collective well-being. To learn more about Esalen and how you can support our mission, visit our website at esalen.org.